Hello, hockey fans, Vegas Golden Knights fans around the world. Uh, That was a little different, but okay. Um, (laughs) This is the Vegas Golden Knights out in round one episode of the Vegas Hockey Podcast. We're a little subdued. I was just telling Chris off the air, we're lucky we didn't do this show Tuesday night. I'd have been F-bombing everybody from the refs to the league to Gary Bettman. And, and I don't know, maybe Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz might have got one too. Who knows? But uh, we've had some time to adjust and, and assimilate and, and, and look at this a little bit objectively. So we'll, we'll get into that. We also have special guest, good friend of the show, Rob Soria, who's always, always generous with his time and, and willing to come on the show and talk about the Edmonton Oilers, who might be looking at, and, and I'm thinking Florida Panthers, but the, the definitely uh, one of the busier off seasons. They have to fill out their front office. They have to get a coach. Uh, there's a lot to get into with the Oilers, so we're going to talk a little bit about Oilers off season today. Um, it's going to be a good show, Golden Knights fans. We've got some bright spots for you, uh, and, and I'll try and cheer up for the next for next season. It's it's a longer summer than we would have wanted, but. Um, If you've watched hockey long enough, you know that these things do happen. We'll be right back. All right, Golden Knights fans, here we go. We're going to look at the at the series as a whole before we get into the game seven. Um, Golden Knights early in the early in the series, they drop game one. They come back, take game two. In games two, three, four, they outscore San Jose sixteen to five. Uh, everything looks like it's on cruise control. They're up three games to one in the series. They go to San Jose and and drop game five, five to two. The Sharks showed up, played a good game. Uh, good Martin Jones showed up. And then game six, you're supposed to close it out at home. Great Martin Jones shows up uh, in a game where the Golden Knights failed to bury their chances. Three three empty net ch- uh, chances early, you know, in the first 12, 13 minutes of, of game six that were shot wide of the net. Uh, as I said before, if you watch hockey long enough, you know that it, it, if you're, if you're going to let a team hang around and hang around and hang around and you're, you're one, nothing one, one, and you're out chancing them, your scoring chances, your high danger chances, your shots, your hits and everything's going the face off percentage. Everything's going your way. The longer that you let the other team hang around and you're not bearing your chances, uh, more often than not, that is going to come back to get you and was the case in game six where I'd say in the second second and third period alone, uh, offensive time was probably easily 70-30% for the Golden Knights and they, they weren't ever able to get that second goal. Uh, we go through the first overtime, no, no scores. Then finally, uh, the Sharks get a, or the Golden Knights get a power play and it, Somehow Thomas Hurdle gets loose up the middle. Uh, Shea Theodore comes back, tries to play the stick. I don't know what the the, the patty cake there with the sticks was, but uh, de- shot actually deflects off Theodore's stick and goes goes uh, 
to the other side of where Flurry was set up, and and the Sharks escaped with a two-one game six victory, which sent the game back to game seven. It was it was tough to lose that game six, and and I was worried going into game seven that the Knights would be flat, and all the momentum was on the Sharks side, and. I'm going to go ahead and say good day to you, Chris, and we'll get into game seven. Yeah, I, I yeah, I agree with you. Good day to you. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, you know, Martin Jones. I mean, missed a couple of missed opportunities early and, um, you know, but they're not, you know, automatic. It's, it's not easy scoring goals in the playoffs, but I, I hear what you're saying. They outplayed them. Other than uh, a good uh, portion, a good portion of the first overtime, I mean, the Vegas is clearly the better team, so Martin Jones – literally stole game six and gave his chance, gave a chance for his team uh, to win the series. Um, yeah. I mean, game seven was, uh, it was, uh, it was probably in all the years of watching hockey or even sports, like uh, uh, a series of uh, actions that, you know, it's kind of hard to comprehend of what happened. I, the best way I could probably describe it is the expression of wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. Now, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, obviously the Sharks are up. I mean, the Sharks. Vegas is up 3 nothing, a little over, ten, what, 10, between 10, 12 minutes to go. Uh, this was looking really incredible. Uh, and then a, a series of events, you know, a, a, a face-off draw. You know, uh, Eakin does, does have, hit him up kind of high. Um, uh, In the chest. Which him uh, yeah, yeah. Which... which I was talking to a good friend of the show. Uh, uh, I, I, I won't say who it was because I didn't say it was his. But he he said to me, you know, not for nothing, but he didn't think that was just a smart play. And I was in retrospect, there's a lot of retrospect. <laughs> anyway, so, so yeah. anyway, uh, that puts, you know, Pawlowski uh, in an unstable, a vulnerable position. And, you know, Stasny moves forward and he kind of gets run over and we have a, a horrific injury on our hands and um you know everyone's like looking real like real quick what happened there and you know uh you got a guy bleeding on the ice so the other refs went over when the whistle stopped a few seconds later and they call five minute major um you know we could probably debate for hours if uh you know that was a good call bad call horrible worst call ever uh personally i don't even though it was as horrible as it was, I don't think it was a five-minute major. I do think there was a penalty. I, I think a worst you could say is uh, let's call two minutes on Eakin for course check, and if you want to call, call uh, uh, do a double minor kind of thing. Um, but that's neither here nor there. You know, obviously they have a few seconds to decide, and they got a guy bleeding on the ice. So I can understand. I don't think it was the right call. I can understand it, but. My point would be, be that all that is as may, um, they got and take the stance they got a horrible call, the worst call ever. Uh, I said this last week, and I know it's a different scenario. It was game two, um, with the goalie interference with the Sharks, and we could probably do a podcast on that because after watching the Islander game last night, I. Uh, uh-huh. I was thinking. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about yeah, you, sir. The goalie, goalie <laughs> interference. Welcome, but, I, but you know, again, to you have the to bad overcome. call community. Right, you have to overcome, but because uh, I'm confused by the whole goalie interference, but we can talk about that maybe next week. Um, and that is, you know what? That does, and I know after the game, everyone's hot. You know, the coach is like, that's why we lost the game. 
Marchessault had his comments. It doesn't give them the right to give up four power play goals. And no. I know it's a five-minute major, so they can score as many times as they can. It doesn't mean, you know, I mean, there's no timeout called by the coach. I think he had the same defense pairing on the whole time. Uh, didn't seem like there was a lot of uh, adjustments. And and the, the Knights, who really since game one of the series, did an incredible job of killing penalties. And, um, you know, it was obviously a rallying point for the Sharks seeing their fallen leader on the ice. And I think they had to, you know, I mean, again, five minutes, hard to kill off a whole five without giving up a goal. But, you know, they needed to at least come out of that five minutes with a 3-2 lead. And they weren't able to do it. They did such a great job, this really, this whole series, uh, fighting off the Sharks' power play. But then the Sharks, but then the Knights, had, withdrew their grit and through the lack of San Jose defense. How is Jonathan Marchessault, with 40-some-odd seconds left, left all alone 10 feet from the net? But that's another matter. Hard work, came up. Hard work. I know, but no, I mean from a, from a, from a defensive standpoint, you can't, you can't have someone – I'm not saying the Vegas – but if you're the – you can't have someone, anyone. If you're, you're five against – it's one thing to be five against six and they have the extra guy, and they're pulling forward, and there's a there's a rebound, and they have the extra body, and they score. They'll leave someone all alone. But anyway, I, I was not impressed with the Sharks' defense this whole series whatsoever, a team overall defense. But then it goes to overtime, and I get it. There's 3 nothing to go with 12 minutes before that play. You've got to say that the, the Vegas probably has a 99% chance of winning a probability of winning that game. And I get it. It goes to overtime. It's a 50-50 call. Uh, but, you know, they they did have, you know, they could have won it in overtime too. So I wasn't too, you know, again, I'm not going to blame anyone after the game because everyone is, uh, is hot and all that. But I, I can't say, they, they you know, and they were put in a really tough spot. But sometimes in sports you do have to overcome. And I think they – they had a chance to do something over that power play, uh, you know, may, you know, not give any more up than two goals, maybe ideally just give up one. And if they get through that, only giving up one, they'll, they'll win the game, I think. And then in overtime, which they had plenty of opportunities just like the Sharks. So it was unfortunate, like I said, because at the end of the day, it was a very weird, unusual set of circumstances, and they were kind of in the, the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, you know, having said that, I, you know, does Eakin have to hit him up high in the chest after the face-off? And does Fastening have to run him over? Uh, you know, I know he's moving forward, but he kind of ran him over. Um, but be that as it may, I think it was just wrong place, wrong time. A lot happened very quickly. And, you know, I wish there was in that instance. I know we don't want any more replays, but I wish there was a replay situation there. Because um, I think it, at worst you could call it the double minor. But uh, well, here's, it's unfortunate. Here's- Here's the rule change that isn't going to um, upset anybody. If you issue a game misconduct and you're throwing a player out of the game, Toronto buzzes the refs, takes a quick look at it. Yep. Nope. Off you go. Uh, Toronto, Toronto, someone who's outside, obviously the refs were influenced by the emotion of the moment on the ice. Uh, for, uh, first and foremost, not, right? yeah, 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 absolutely. First and foremost, um, nobody wants to see that kind of an injury happen to any player at any time. Um, I, you know, wish Joe Pavelski 
speedy recovery and and back on the ice with his team a, as soon as he can. You don't want to see that kind of a play. Um, it, that being said, it's a hockey play. Uh, you, you they win the faceoff. You, you chuck the guy to get out and cover your man who's the point man. Um, and that's what Eakin was doing. Um, as he lost his balance, Stastny and him got tangled up, like you said, um, and he fell awkwardly and, and hit his head. And, and, you know, the whole hockey world knows that it's not a major. Uh, the league called uh, Mr. Foley and George McPhee uh, apologizing for the play. Uh, on the ice, the ref told George Gerard Gallant uh, he hit him in the face with his stick. And, and we all know that that didn't happen. So in, right. in a situation, and I don't care if you only want to institute it for the playoffs, where if a right. player's getting ejected, then the play is an automatic review by Toronto. You got to get out of the the, the arenas, the emotion, um, you know, uh, the the physical shock of, of of seeing what happened to to Joe Felsky or, or you know another player in a similar situation. Um, you can't. And I'm not feeling bad for the refs. They still have a job to do. But but to have a, an impartial group That's who's not being influenced by the emotion uh, in the arena review the play and get you know get back to the refs and go well it wasn't a stick to the face he he hit him and you give him a two minute minor or, or a double minor or whatever um, but we can't have him out of the game he he doesn't deserve a game misconduct for what happened. Um, that's, that's the rule change that I can get behind in that situation is, and I don't even need to review every major penalty, but if you're, if you're going to add the game misconduct and the ejection and the automatic fine that goes with that and, and player safety review that can, you know, follow that player into a next incident for the next 18 months, then uh, I'd be all for having Toronto review that kind of a play. But, and like, like you said, two, two things, don't give up four goals in four minutes. Uh, Vegas absolutely yeah. melted down on the major. There's no question about that. Um, I'll, I'll always uh, love Marsha show for tying that game. And, you but know, he was great. I, he did, that, I, I'm not he, criticizing He was him. great the whole game. Um, yeah, no. But, but you can't, for, you just for can't them, leave someone that wide open. I can't quite believe what I was watching. I was like, uh, anyway, he, he, I'm sorry. He spun off his man and, and made himself open. Um, yeah, and, and I, I don't know. Maybe it's the... been watching Barry Trotzel's team the system all year. I, 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 to me, that's just sinful. Anyway, well, yeah. So, my, is, my so is leaving Alexander Ovechkin wide open on the far circle on the power play, but teams do that every single night. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. Y- 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 you know what I'm saying? You got give Marsha show and the boys oh, all the credit in the world for tying that game up. But, but I, I go back to game six. You're up 3-1 in the series. You go back to San Jose. You, you drop game five, fine. You come home. And, and I've seen every game this season. The the game six performance the Golden Knights put on, I, I put it in their top five games of the year. That was yeah, that right. was dominating hockey. And if, if you, you, you know, you put your foot on your net on the neck right there and you finish that game out. Um, they weren't able to do that. And you leave it, you leave it to, you know, you give the refs a chance to get involved with 10 minutes left on the road, game seven, up three, nothing, everything going your way. The sharks are tired. You know, every time they dump the puck in, the Knights are first, first on the puck, winning all the puck battles, creating all the chances all the way through the game. Um, very, very methodical, very patient, very perfect 
road game strategy and execution by a team going on the road in a game seven. Um, you couldn't ask for more than that. But when you let a team hang around and you, you, you let the refs get in, look, I'm a Rams fan. I've been the, the recipient of a call like that in very recent right. memory. Uh, apologies to Saints fans. Uh, I'm not going to be the guy that says, oh, that's a good no call. Uh, no, the Saints got hosed. The Rams went to the Super Bowl. And, and the, I'm not, you know, there's no other way to say it. The Knights got hosed and the Sharks moved on. But the, the, the meltdown. Case, though, in and, fairness, and, the fairness of refs. Well, so much happened in the blink of an eye. They didn't um, even see the play. And, they weren't calling a penalty on the play. Right. No, the I'm play just proceeded saying, for, that, that was, for five that was, seconds. That would not so. be a position I would want any ref to be. That was a tough – I'm not saying they were right, and I'm not saying they handled it right. I'm saying is I can understand how they got the call wrong. That's my point. Whereas <laughs> well, the, we've the talked, other Chris, game we've, – We've talked on the show before. You don't call the result of the penalty – and, and, you know, we right. agree on this. You call the penalty. And if you don't see the penalty, you can't make it up because Joe Thornton are, are, is skating off the ice yelling in your face, that's five minutes, that's five minutes, and, and make a decision uh, that ultimately cost the Golden Knights uh, the series ba- based on the emotion of the minute and the, the pressure of the Sharks and they didn't see it. They weren't calling a penalty on the play. Play proceeded for five to seven seconds afterwards. The puck came back, moved across the point, went down to the half wall, and when Joe didn't get up, that's when, that's when they blew the whistle to stop play. Um, the, the, there wasn't going to be a, a penalty at all. So I, that's the other problem I have. How do you go from the face-off to what happened to the other five to seven seconds not calling a penalty. The ref's arm wasn't in the air. There wasn't a delayed call because San Jose had the puck. You can't go from a no call to a five-minute major and a game is gone. No, I agree. I with think 10 minutes left said, in but I think, seven. It's but a they, blown call. It, it is, but I think Vegas had to, had, had to respond better, clearly. I well, mean, sure. Clearly. Uh, I mean, and, no, and, the two aren't mutually and they did. exclusive. And to be fair, after the five minutes, they did. They kept fighting. They didn't you know, they didn't give up or anything like that. They set the game in overtime, and in overtime, each side had equal great chances. It was amazing to me that we almost went through the whole first overtime of the ridiculous great chances everybody had. And, yeah. um, um, you know, like I said, I really feel like it was uh, – it will be – I've been watching the hockey a long time. I, I can't remember the time I saw it a play in a situation like that happen, and I'm sure it'll be that kind of uh, amount of time again before I see a play like that. It was just really, it was the wrong, being at the wrong place at the wrong time on so many levels in terms of the refs, maybe refs calling it in terms of the situation, the whole nine yards, and they, and they got, you know, and they got, you know, part of that. I mean, I do slightly disagree that Eakin did hit him pretty forcefully up high, I could see why they would call, uh, but you're right; they didn't call anything right away. So, which, so I get the whole frustration. Um, trust me, I no, I totally well, for get sure. Whole... I, I don't, I don't think we disagree at all. He can cross check yeah. him across the shoulders and the chest. There's no question about that. Yeah. Um, but that kind of contact happens all the time. Happened the whole series and wasn't even right. called a minor. Uh, if you're standing right. in front of the net and you're not getting cross-checked harder than that in the back, then something's wrong. You know what I mean? 
You're, right. Yeah, no. And, I, and that those plays aren't called, and they weren't calling a penalty on the play. So to graduate from no penalty to five-minute major game misconduct, you're out. And, and I understand the rule. There is discretion. The rule itself reads, to a ref's discretion, with a deliberate intent to injure, a game misconduct may be assessed on a cross-checking penalty. It also says a two-minute minor, a four-minute double minor, or a five-minute major may be assessed at the discretion of the ref based on the severity of the contact. It doesn't say on the severity of the result. It doesn't say if someone gets twisted around and, and gets hurt in the aftermath of the cross-check. It says the severity of the contact. Now, if people want to argue that that kind of a check off a face-off is severe enough contact to warrant a five-minute major call, and they're going to start calling games like that, then that's not even a sport I want to watch anymore. You know what yeah, I mean? No, I it, want it, physical yeah, hockey. No, it, it, if it you're saying so... that that contact is severe enough for a major penalty to be assessed, no, then no. watch, watch I, I, I the think, first period. I think you could make an argument. Watch like I said, the first I think you could make an argument for Boston a couple Columbus. minor at best. Yeah, watch the major. first period of but, Boston but Columbus the, but, if you want severe ref, contact that wasn't even called. Yeah, the refs are human, and, you know, to, to say that, you know, the I'm guys not going on to the be ice fair. not moving. It, it, right. And not, and <laughs> I'm not going to be fair. They're professionals. No, I understand. But, it, it, you know, it's going to have, rightly or wrongly, it's going to have an effect. I really do yeah, believe that. Yeah, again, uh, why, I agree. That's why if a player is getting ejected in the playoffs, I, I, I'm all for having Toronto buzz in, calm the situation down, have people that aren't in the emotion of the moment review the play and see if an ejection is warranted. I don't want five-minute Yeah, majors I would agree with that. The only, the only thing that I, is, If you've got a five-minute major coming, fine. But if you're ejecting a player in the playoffs and the supplemental discipline that's going to come along with an ejection is, and everything that goes into that, then get, get out of the ref's get them out off the ice, you know, take, take, take the heat off of those refs in that, that emotional situation. Right. Obviously they're going to be uh, influenced by what, what's happening. You so you get to get it in the situation room, simple, simple couple views of the replay. And, you know, if the player warrants an ejection, get him out of there. If the, the situation, you know what, it's not an ejectable, it, he hit the, you know, let's say from one angle, the ref thought it was a shoulder to head contact and then ejects the guy and Toronto could say, you know what? It was actually shoulder to shoulder. The, the head contact, the primary point of contact was actually the shoulder, not the head. Don't eject him, give him a penalty, you know, whatever the case may be. If you're kicking a player out of the game in the playoffs, I'm all for having uh, uh, Toronto come in and, and just review that part of the play. I don't want relay bogging down games. Uh, you, obviously, you get the flow of the game hurt. You, you, you're giving the team that's on the, the, you know, the positive momentum gaining side. You're taking a little bit away from that, the flow of the game. You're letting the team that's on the negative impact of that kind of, you know, the, the emotions level out the longer the stoppage of play. I, I get all that. But if you're ejecting a guy, I, I got to see, I, I'm not, you know, they changed the pass interference rules, made them reviewable uh, for my, you know, my Rams, uh, like I said, and then go back to game two. I'm, I'm all for uh, that, that the Knights player 
definitely inst- instituted contact, pushed him into flurry. That goal should have allowed. I'm not going at this with Homer glasses or anything. Um, but in the same situation, if Sharks fan is going to tell me that, oh, the game two stole all the momentum, well, they have the chance to go back and score more goals and erase that. Don't come back at us and say the Knights shouldn't have given up four goals because of the situation they were in. Um, you can't use both arguments. And I agree that the game two goalie interference was uh, a, a bad call. But, yeah, different I mean, it is what it is. You can't give up four goals in four yeah. minutes. Kudos to Jonathan Marshall for tying the games. Finish your chance in overtime. Finish your chance in game six. Finish your chances in game five in the series. Don't let the rest get involved with ten minutes left in the game. Um, that's basically my take on it. I wanted to get to some stats, but we'll do this after we bring in our guest, Rob Soria, uh, author of Connor McDavid, Hockey's Next. Great one. Rob, thank you, sir, for joining the show today. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Hope uh, you are both doing well. Not too bad. <laughs> Out of the playoffs a little sooner than I thought we would be there with 10 minutes left in the game, but um, you probably heard a little bit of uh, uh, the, the the conversation. Let me get your take on, on it real quick before we get to the Oilers. Um, your your take on Game 7. Um, this is a terrible call. It goes without saying, but at the end of the day, you can't give up four goals. Sorry. Yeah, That's what it comes down to. Like, I agree. there's no argument for the for what the ref called. Like that's idiotic. It was just brutal, right? They made something up essentially that didn't occur. Um, yeah, exactly. Which which was the most troubling part. It's like if you don't see something, you don't see it. And uh, whether it was an official that made it up or one of the linesmen that made it up, um, that sucks. And you know, it, it's terrible for uh, Vegas for sure. But at the end of the day. No one's making the big this big a deal out of it if they didn't let in the four goals, right? They would have just been like, oh, it's a sure. terrible call. So, and for me, it's different, but I harp it back to <clears throat> the last time the Oilers were in the playoffs, and they blew that lead against Anaheim when Talbot's pad clearly got reamed on by uh, Kessler. At the end of the day, yes, yep. that was terrible. It was missed, but they blew a three-goal lead like in a minute. So, you know, that's on them. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no question. I, I, no question about it. That, and that, that's really my thing is if you, there was no penalty going to be called on the play, the play went after the faceoff five to seven seconds before they stopped play with Pavelski uh, not moving on the ice um, to go from no call to five minutes and, and a game is conduct is is egregious to say the least yep. I, and that, that's that's my biggest problem with it don't yep. let in four no. goals in four minutes um yeah. uh, obviously they melted down on the pk there after doing a great job handling the sharks power play uh the whole series uh kudos to the boys for sacking up and getting that game tied to overtime uh but at, at the end of the day they were put in a situation they shouldn't have been in yeah, wholeheartedly, hundred percent agree with you. It was, uh, and again, I I totally get where Vegas fans aren't happy and the team as well. But yeah, it, it, it sucks. No whining. What can you do? You got to move <laughs> no on. No whining. Yeah, and I think I think next season, um, the boys are going to be ready to play at the drop of the puck on October first or third or you know whenever their first game is. I, I got a good feeling about next season. Um, anyway, let's get to the Oilers. You're here to talk a little Edmonton Oilers hockey. We have uh, a general manager to do. We have a coach to do. We've got three agents. Uh, are they coming back? What are we going to do at net? 
Um, there's a lot to get to. And, and aside from the Florida Panthers, uh, who, who jumped on Coach Q and are well into their plans. Uh, Edmonton's taking a little bit longer. I, I know they wanted to interview Kelly McCrimmon from the Golden Knights, and we had to wait till, uh the playoffs were finished before the Vegas Golden Knights gave him permission to do that. Well, So let's start at the top. We I pretty much figure that they're going to give the, the new general manager, whoever he is, the chance to hire his coach. Uh, so let's get into the general manager situation. Where are we with that? Well, it's it's been it's an odd one, right? Because if for those that don't live in this market or follow it quite uh, regularly, um, it's been an all-out attack on the organization from pretty much everyone when Chiarelli was let go, uh, which was a far cry from what it was before. You guys have spoken to me in the past with regards to things, and I'm one who was wasn't a fan of the work he did from you know long ago and knew this day was probably coming it took a lot of Oilers fans and media especially local media to kind of get on that train later on but now that they're there um, the heat's been pretty uh, heavy on Bob Nicholson and the rest of the organization so what I find a little bizarre is we all like you mentioned we all knew the McCrimmon thing uh, they were waiting for um, the, the <laughs> over the last many weeks, there's been so many names that have come up, but as things are starting to come down, I don't know if you guys have heard in the last day or two, a lot of people are saying it's McCrimmon, Hunter, and then Sean Burke came out of like literally nowhere. Like his name had been mentioned yeah. before, but those were like the three names, which the thing where I threw up kind of a red flag, whereas we've heard for weeks on end, how they're going through this process and they're interviewing yay, this guy, this guy, that guy, all sorts of different people, Nicholson talking to people at the GM meetings, blah, blah, blah. And now all of a sudden, they once the season ended, they did some interviews, and now all of a sudden we're down to the two guys who were mentioned from the get-go, as soon as Shirelli was let go, that it could be McCrimmon and Hunter, two of the you know younger, hotter names out there for guys who had never been GMs, and then another Hockey Canada guy. So that part of it does concern me a little bit. I have no issue um, with Burke getting an interview in any way, shape, or form. I just hope that they went through the process that they actually said they did, where they interviewed a ton of different people. Um, And again, uh, nothing will surprise me if it's McCrimmon was the betting favorite from day one, and I still think that's where this lands. (laughs) Yeah. And it could be him, and it could be Hunter, and I still thought, and I've always thought those would be the two um, that were most likely to get the gig. But yeah, this, like I said, for this all of a sudden to come out now that they're kind of the three, I'm just like, well, what, what is going on? It just doesn't make much sense for me. Well, it just let me ask add you up. this. Let me ask you this, as far as Kelly McCrimmon goes. You come to Vegas, phenomenal success. Any way you look at it, any angle. Uh, monetarily on the ice, off the ice, community involvement. Every angle of Vegas has been a phenomenal success. You you have, you know, you're never buying a drink in Vegas again, as they say, you know what I mean? Um, what can Edmonton offer McCrimmon besides a challenge to, and money, of course, <laughs> um, to, to have him go up there and, and undertake the, the Oilers, which, you know, there's a lot of challenges left salary cap wise players uh, so on and so forth to get this team where, where Edmonton fan base wants them to be. Um, what can they offer McCrimmon besides the challenge? 
Well, I think the the first and most notable thing is a GM gig, right? There's only yeah. so many of those around the league. So that's number one. Um, again, <laughs> you get to run a team with, uh, well, let's not kid ourselves, easily the, the best player in the world. Rational player that's been around this league, in my opinion, for quite some time. Best player um, in the world. Yeah, and also there's something, again, Western Hockey League guy, did all of that yep. out there where he ran, mm-hmm. you know, he ran everything with the franchise there. And the other thing yep. you got to remember, winning something in a place like Edmonton, um, especially if you are used to that type of uh, environment, um, it's different. You even heard it. Um, I don't know if you guys heard any of the uh, interviews from Todd McClellan uh, this past week uh, after he got the gig with the uh, Kings, he even said, he's like, yeah, it didn't work out. He's like, but this is like a completely different animal. And Hitch said the same thing, even yeah, though the no season question. hadn't gone well. It's just different. Like, in this this area literally lives and breathes hockey 24-7. So to win in that type of market, if you can, I can only imagine what it would be like for one of those guys, right? So I think that's part of it as well. But you're not wrong. There are not. Ch- there are a whole bunch of challenges and uh, hurdles. Whoever takes this gig, that they got to go. They got to try and get over, and it won't be easy. It's it's like if you have a chance to be a head coach in the 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 Mountain West Conference for football or the Southeast Conference in football. Yep. <laughs> down down here in the states, there's there, you know it, it, there is that difference in the marketplace. There's no question about it. Um, yeah, and that's that's the biggest thing, right? And and when you're from that area ish, and you remember, and you know what it's like, and then for you to actually be in it and win it, uh, you know, it's and it's been with what Edmonton's gone through over the past decade and a half for it to rebound to that to that extent of where they hope to gets to. Um, yeah, it'd be a that'd be a pretty big thing, and and it'd be something pretty neat to put on your resume, obviously, right? A sure. one storied great franchise that has had arguably to glory. they end up being yeah, and end up being two of the greatest players maybe who have ever played this game on this franchise, and you were able to turn that team around. You know, it's uh, there's definitely opportunity, and if you uh, if you're big enough, if you have uh, big enough ego to take on the role. <laughs> It's not going to be easy. That's all. No, I'll no, say. you're putting the crosshairs squarely on your forehead. It went if you take that job. Um, I, I, I was watching the Twitter feed blow up. I, uh, ironically, Vegas was the last game as Shirelli's tenure, I believe. And yeah, uh, you don't want to go through that. I mean, for for me, I was like, oh my goodness, they they're they're. I think at the time they were still only what six or seven points out of the playoffs um but yeah but anyone who knew anything knew that was a fallacy man like we like i've been saying it since like november (laughs) it's like if you watch them play the only way they were getting in was as if their horses dragged them in and their goaltender played out of their mind out of his mind right and that, that would have been the only way just because as we've seen in these playoffs this league is so people will say parody i to in my opinion, sometimes it's mediocrity. The teams are very they're even. You know, everyone loses their mind that oh Tampa Bay lost to Columbus. Well, honestly, outside of the Islanders and Columbus sweeping, 
no one should be surprised by anything that's going on in the playoffs. All these teams are pretty close, right? Like they're they're all pickums. If you, they usually are close series. So you know, at the end of the day, you're always going to be tight in the standings, right? Because that's just how the league is. Yeah. Well, let me let me uh, let me bring in Chris. I wanted to get one more thing, but uh, let me let me bring in Chris and let him fire off a couple at you. And, and I want to get back to something that I think would be a good idea, coaching wise. But Chris, go on, jump in, sir. Hey, Rob, good to talk to you again. So I look at the Oilers as a kind of poor man's lease, Toronto Maple Leafs, from this standpoint. Um, uh, they have a number of issues, and maybe you can point out the the two or three, or maybe there's four of their biggest issues, they don't have a lot of cap space. They have a thin prospect pipeline. And so I then the question comes to me, well, how do the Oilers get better? So maybe if you could point out what their biggest issues are, and given those uh, parameters, how do they get better? Um, you're not... Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, the pipeline's not as thin as some people think. It's got That's the one thing I will say during the Shirelli regime. Uh, things did improve there, whereas I don't give, I don't put that on him. I put that more so on the people who were, you know, in charge of scouting and doing that sort of thing. So Keith Gretzky and his team from a amateur scouting side. The pro scouting side is a whole different matter. It's just a dog's breakfast. As far as how do they get out of this, they got to be creative. So whatever GM comes in, um, they have to be open to doing anything. Um, I know a lot of people here, Ryan Nugent Hopkins is coming off his best year. Um, I love the guy. I've loved him since day one. I don't want to see him traded. Uh, that says if the GM does his job properly, if you can get a good return for, uh, for Nugent Hopkins, who's two years away from becoming a UFA, that you can, subs, you know, basically fill holes elsewhere um, and then make other trades, you have to look at it. Darnell Nurse is another guy. you got to look at it. I know everyone's like, oh, you can't trade your good players. Well, unfortunately, like you said, they don't have much in the way of assets. They could move their first rounder this year, which I think will be in play, um, possibly, depending on who's on the board. But that could be used either as a direct trade. It could also be used as a trade-down scenario. Or even I've mentioned, I think you may discussed it the other day, even a trading up scenario, depending with something else. The issue they're going to have, though, as we mentioned, is the biggest hurdle that whatever GM comes in is going to be the cap. Because you can't move Lucic. Well, well, you might, but if you do, it's going to cost you, I don't know what, for a team to take him. Um, the Koskinen thing is a huge, huge thing. If he doesn't you know, even become an adequate netminder, uh, they're screwed because, you know, you're paying him four and a half million. If he's like, let's say, the combination of a 1A and 1B, let's say your Islanders as a perfect example. Well, the Islanders had a great year this year. They weren't paying their goaltenders $9 million. You know, if the Oilers have him bounce back and bring in a second guy who does well, they're going to be paying the two of them between six to nine mil. And you can't, they, they, they can't survive that with the way this team is built. Uh, they just have too many bad contracts. So what they got to do is be creative, make deals, and start bringing up some younger guys who can play. Tyler Benson's had a great year in the AHL this year. I don't doubt that he'll probably get a shot at making the team next year. Um, uh, Caleb Jones, 
very good chance he could be on the blue line. Um, there's a couple other options they have on the blue line, which might end up playing out. So they do have, and then Yamamoto and Pugliarvin, you know, one of those guys could be dealt too, but on the other side, one of those guys could be here. So I can't give you a direct answer, man, because it's really difficult to, to do without seeing if whatever GM comes in is creative enough and has the balls to make trades that could help the team. Now there's a difference between making a smart trade that or multiple trades that could improve your team, as opposed to making the sort of trades Shirelli made where you're literally handicapping yourself in another area and not filling the need you were actually trying to fill when you made the deal. If you kind of get where I'm going with that. Okay, I got one more before I let you hand you back to Mark and uh, let him finish up, and that is you mentioned the eighth overall pick, so it's a two-pronger. You mentioned about potentially trading up. I mean, obviously not. it's not going to be in one or two, the one or two spot, but potentially maybe that three, four, five spot. Is there a player if they should be targeting in that spot to trade up? Let's just assume for now. They can figure out a way it's going to cost, obviously. And if not, if they stay at eight, is there a player uh, that you love that you think is going to be on the board at eight that you'd love to see them take? Well, for me, if they move up, uh, it would be in that three or four spot, and it would be it would be Byram that they'd look at. I know everyone's like, oh, they don't need defensemen. Yeah, but this kid's the equivalent of being able to – he's NHL ready for pretty much everyone I heard – and I've seen him play a few times. Um, they have Bouchard coming, and I think Bouchard's he's, he's going to be a better player than Bouchard. Um, so, yeah, if they can move up and do something like that, you make that deal, and then obviously you've got to add something to get it. But then, as I mentioned earlier, you move other pieces, right? So in that case, if you were to get a guy like him, you maybe move a nurse. You maybe move a cleft bomb. I wouldn't move cleft bomb, but you never know. Uh, they might be able to. Uh, the problem with I find once in a while with Clefbaum now, it's every year he gets hurt. It's weird stuff, but every year he gets hurt. For me, he's their best defenseman, so I'd rather move Nurse because he's got a big payday coming to him, probably too much uh, the, for what he's worth. But So that's who I would say there. On the back side of it, um, honestly, if would Turcotte you move, or Zegers, quick, Rob, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Would, you move, would, you, would, you move, would you move Bouchard to go from eight to three and maybe you get something else back? Uh, from Chicago, along with the the three pick, I would. Which would be open to? Okay. Yeah, I would. I don't know if they would, but I would. Right. And Bouchard's a hell of a player. Don't get me wrong. Now, as you right. said, there'd have to be something else coming back. Um, but that again, it's like I mentioned earlier, it's a creative standpoint. Do yeah, you, no, I guess it. Yeah. Do you want to give up on a kid like Bouchard? No, not at all. Um, that said, his skating probably will be an issue to a degree. Um, Best case scenario, in my opinion, he probably ends up being a second-pairing defenseman who's a beast on the power play. But if you make this deal, you have your beast on the power play. And the kid they'd be getting if they draft him, I think it has the potential of being a first-pairing guy. So it would depend on that other piece. So, you know, tough to say there. And then, yeah, back to what I was mentioning earlier, if they are sitting, if they keep it and they're at eight and a guy like Turcotte or Zegras are there, for sure, you you grab those guys. If those guys happen to be gone too, then again, you you seriously entertain moving the pick and go from there. 
Well, all right. I wanted to follow up one thing, and and you said that the general manager will, whoever it ends up being, uh, will have to be creative and open to uh, all kinds of of interesting things that that need to be done. And you mentioned Lucic. Is there enough relief uh, on a buyout for no. Lucic? <laughs> no. 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 Not at all. No. It's, it's the way it was structured, and I give him and his agent fully full. I can't remember off the top of my head the years, but there are two years where the Oilers would get massive cap relief, like half of his salary sort of thing. But there are also two years left on there where they'd, they're still, they'd, they'd be on the hook for like almost five and a half mil. So it's like, how the hell do you buy that out? You know, oh. if, if it's a five and a half million dollar cap hit for a couple of the years, you, you cannot buy that out, right? It's, it's literally, you, it, it's impossible. Now, could yeah. they, if they could could they find a team somewhere who might be able to take him with an asset and take half? I don't know, maybe, but I, I just look at the NHL now, as we were talking about earlier, the way they're so close and even the, the supposed bottom feeder teams, they've gotten so young and, and more talented and better Arizona being a perfect example. Cause that's always everyone's answer, right? Uh, send them to Arizona, send them to Florida, sure. send them wherever these teams are getting better. So they're better, they're younger, and they're going to be paying some of these guys. They can't take on Lucic for another four years, even at yeah. three million. Why? Why would you do that? You know, yeah, so no unless you get a hell of a piece back, right? And as uh, Chris was mentioning early earlier, well, you're not going to move uh, Lucic and you know Bouchard. <laughs> that that isn't going to happen. <laughs> right. That's just your. You know, you're just shooting yourself in the foot and making it without much worse. So we said yeah, creative, not crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but that's it. You never know. Again, there are teams that like still that type of heavy hockey. We've seen it, and we've seen it to a degree in the playoffs. Um, the problem with Lucic is he's just been so bad. Um, it's and, it's almost like it's a different type of situation and a different type of player, but it's the same thing you hear all Leafs fans losing their mind about with Marlowe. The difference is Marlowe has, I think, one year left, right? Yeah, right. Lucic has four, so <laughs> three three year deal versus seven. Maybe yeah. the best thing Dean Lombardi didn't do was match that offer. <laughs> well, right. well, and and in Shirelli's defense, as awful a move as it was, and it was from the get go, and anyone, a lot of people are changing that tune now as to what they said initially. Um, the Oilers weren't the only ones in that. Right, the Canadians no, were right sure. there too. Dallas was in there, which Kings wanted which goes, him back bad. Yeah, which which tells me right there that there's enough, there's still a possibility, right, that there'd be an old, and it's usually the old school GM who might be out there and be like, ah, I can save this guy, I can fix him. Maybe if we can get an asset with him and we eat half, and the Oilers eat half the money, you know, great, right? You know, but I don't see it. It would be great. But I just I just don't see it happening. All right, one last question, and we'll get to the, the coaching situation. We know for sure the new GM is going to have a chance to bring in his own coach. And, and you mentioned uh, Koskinen getting uh, to be a, a serviceable NHL number one goaltender. Um, my thought is that a, a coach like Daryl Sutter – who can come in and put structure in this group and get a team defense concept in place that hasn't been able to be achieved with this group, obviously 
will improve the goaltenders' numbers. I mean, yeah, and you mentioned the Islanders and Trots, and it's it's, it's a beautiful example. Um, and maybe not Coach Sutter, but um, Coach Hitch, Coach Hitch, in a little bit, um, kind of the same philosophy of coaching, but not not the same. I I think that a, a Coach Sutter type coach. Um, would be just about what this team needs to and, and put that kind of structure in front of Koskinen, take the pressure off of him from having to, you know, save 38 pucks a night, um, cut down on the shots against into the twenties. And I, I think that kind of structure and, and the personnel I think is there to play that style game and still have the speed in the offensive, you know, like a Dallas, um, Chris, Chris threw some numbers out when we were doing our playoff preview show this year of how good defensively Dallas has been all year. And I had not, you know, I, you know, I still think of Dallas as two or three years ago is let's just win five, four, six, three games. Um, yeah. but, but that's not true. Well, um, how important guys, uh, just would to, that just to throw real quick about the structure with quick point last year, the Islanders were not only last in the league in terms of goals given up, they were the worst, in the NHL in terms of goals given up in a decade, okay? Now we've yep. yeah. forward one, one, one season with basically the same roster, 80%, yep. okay? Komarov comes in, Filippola, Leonard for Halak, but basically the same roster. They go from that under trots and loose structure to number one in the league in terms of the least amount of goals allowed and winning the Jennings. So it yeah. can happen. But the, the, you that get thing, the right though, coach. The, the, both of those examples, though, the Islanders thing is is a, well. Leonard played out of his mind. Good compared to previous. I think he's that said. I don't think Leonard's ever reached his potential, and he kind of came closer to it this year. So I think that plays into it. You're right. The structure is a lot better. Um, they all bought into that, but the Islanders roster is better. Um, same thing, like when you look at it, the, people can say what they want about the Oilers roster, but if they actually look at it, it's not very good. They have no depth up front, and their defense, as a, sometimes as names, they work fine, but as a collective, they don't. And the issue with, and actually I'm glad you guys brought up Dallas, because Dallas is a perfect example. Um, the, two, the two biggest differences between Dallas and the Oilers, um, Bishop's a hell of a goalie when he's healthy, yep. he always has been. Secondly, yep. Dallas's defense isn't great, but one thing Dallas's defenseman or defense is great at is moving the puck, and because of it, it's made them a way better hockey team. The Oilers' yep. biggest issue behind their blue line is they cannot move the puck. So that's so we can sit here and say Dallas and this and that, but the Oilers don't have defensemen who can move the puck. Right now, they have well, in my opinion, they have two that play regularly, and that's Clefbaum. And, well, honestly, it's Clefbaum. Nurse can, but Nurse Zachary. isn't a good passer of the puck. Nurse can transition the puck out, but he's not a good passer. You know, Benny Zachary. isn't bad at it. Sorry? Oh, yeah, Sekera. But see, with Sekera, the only thing with Sekera is... He's got to be on the ice. That's it, right? And, yeah, you're right. Hmm. So that's why I said two, and I totally forgot. It's Sekera is the other one. But the problem with Sekera is, again, if he stays healthy... And he might be the guy they end up trying to move if they can't move Lucic, which, again, they'd have to eat money, and he makes $5.5 million. And while he's not the defenseman he once was, as you mentioned, Chris, he can still move the puck. 
So in a sense, yep. you're, you're creating more of a hole on your back end. And, and that's the problem with the Oilers. It's not an easy fix. And as far as no. the coach goes, I don't think a guy like Sutter is what they need, to be honest. I don't mind about the structure. But the, whole, the old school, hard-nosed dude, that isn't what these guys need. Uh, the okay. fallacy that has been going on forever about the Oilers is that their players are this, this, or that. And they don't listen. And the struck. This goes back to the Hall, Eberle, Nugent Hopkins days. It has nothing to do with that. It's not culture. It's not anything. The issue is the roster stinks. If you want to be better, put together a better roster. It's, right. it's that simple. It's not the players. Um, McCollum's not a terrible coach, and McCollum always kind of preached defense first. And he's not a terrible coach. He's not. He's not a great coach. He's not a terrible coach, but the thing is, people here was like, as soon as Hitch came in, they're like, oh, look at the structure. They're winning games. Well, no, their goalie got hot. Yeah. As we see, we watch, yeah, we watch enough NHL games between the three of us. Goalies can get hot, and they carry you <laughs> for a game or two or a week or two, and then when you have two of the top five scorers in the damn league, they're going to put up points. <laughs> So yeah. you're going to win the odd game, but you can't expect McDavid and Dreisaitl to put up three points every single night with no help and then hope for Koskinen, who at best is a 1B-ish goalie, to stand on his head 24-7. You know what I mean? So Yeah. And the coaches, honestly, there's been like no talk about coaches here at all, like none, because until the GM is yeah, – the GM chair is filled – there, it's not even worth breaching the subject, which kind of does put them behind the the eight ball if they want to look at getting someone tenured. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if they go with a younger coach. So, well, the guy in the Mollies, right? The Toronto Mollies. He's just sitting out there waiting for someone to hire him. Well, that's the one I'm real curious to see what occurs this year because I think anyone who watched the Leafs not implode because I think that was a pretty tight series. Babcock is what he is. And in my opinion, there may not be a more overrated coach in the league and hasn't been for the past decade. He's a good coach, but people make him sound like, you know, he's the greatest coach ever. And Yeah. Well, I think I could go coach team Canada to a gold medal because that's all he's ever done in the last decade. Sorry. You know, that's what he's done. And he refuses. Well, to yeah. He, he, he doesn't he's adjust. Out of the woods yet. He's not yeah. out of the woods yet in terms of, uh, Definitely being the coach next year, which was eye, uh, raising eyebrows. Uh, yeah, anyway. well, and that's the, the that's the thing with with him and the, with the guy with the uh, with the kid in the Marlies there. If they end up at a point where another team comes at them, what do you do? It's the same thing they have with Dubis and Lou, right? Like part of the reason that it happened when it did is because Colorado came knocking for Dubis, right? And the Leafs let him interview, and then they were going to offer him the gig, and they said no. You're not going. So then Dubas is like, well, no. Then if that's the case, well, what are we doing here? So when when opportunity arises, you can't hold guys back, right? And same thing. Hey, if the same... I, I, I'm thr- I'm thrilled personally that it played out that way. <laughs> yeah, <for laughs> no sure. doubt, no because, doubt. Because if that if that didn't happen, then uh, Lou's not in here, New and York. if Lou, and, and Lou's not here, Trance is not here. So yeah, yeah you, yeah, the, you guys were the benefit of that for sure. Yeah, it's well, worked we're out just great about for the Islanders, right? Guys. 
We're just about out of time, Rob. I want to thank you for coming in. Aside from Florida and the free agent market, uh, Edmonton might be one of the most interesting teams to pay attention to in this offseason, um, especially people following the Pacific Division. You want to, like Vegas Golden Knights fans. By the way, the Todd McClellan hire in L.A. I hate, just for the record. I, <laughs> I just want to go out there and throw that in there. Um, since he he came up, uh, that's uh, UG is about as far as I can go on that. But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Rob, thanks again. You're always so generous with your time when we reach out to you. And I appreciate it. Uh, make sure you guys follow him on Twitter at oil underscore drop. Uh, Rob, again, thank you, sir. And we'll talk to you down the road. Okay, guys. Take care. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Absolutely. Thanks, you thanks Rob. Talk soon. Okay. Cheers. So real, 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 real quick, Mark. Um, you know, also, too, Rob wrote a great book called uh, – Economic David, the next great one. So uh, go on Amazon. Yeah, and also he covers the Edmonton Oilers for the hockey writers. We've had uh, Rob on really since uh, we started the show, and he knows more in Tampa and in tune to the Oilers. And and again, I think it's it's they only have so many chips, and they have to get so many different things, and they don't have really a lot of salary cap uh, space to do it. And it's a league where it's hard to make moves, and free agency costs an arm and a leg. I think it's, a, you know, I, I, it's not going to be done overnight, you know, uh, uh, yeah. quite honestly. They just don't have any – they don't really have any flex, flexibility in terms of adding players in and, and in terms of, you know, what – you know, I forget about trading McDavid, obviously, or Dreisaitl. After that, what assets do they have that people are like, oh, I would really love to get that guy? I, right. I, it's a short list. It's a short yeah. list. It's Nugent Hopkins. It'll be, it's it's going to be interesting Bouchard. to see. Yeah, no, I think McCrimmon, if he wants the job, unless McCrimmon wants to wait around for Seattle, he wants that job, I think he's going to get it. Yeah, oh, well, no doubt about it. Um, I I would not wish that on him, though. He's been – if I'm Seattle, I'm already calling him and saying, dude, don't do it. You've been through the expansion process. We're going to knock you on your backside with a contract, um, and you get a chance to run the show like you just saw Vegas do, and – yeah, I mean Seattle and McCrimmon is the fit. I don't see. Wouldn't, uh, Seattle, wouldn't Seattle already made the call now that Vegas has been eliminated? To they may have. Say we want to talk. Oh yeah, I mean we don't know. They may have. Right. Yeah, well, anyway, that that's going to uh, wrap it up for this week. I got I got to run. Uh, next week we're going to have Gabriel Foley on uh, the bounce yep. back Cinderella story. My dark horse. For the Western Conference, St. Louis Blues is who Gabriel Foley covers, and we're going to see how they're doing in their playoff series, up one nothing against the Dallas Stars, and it'll, it'll be a, a, a great talk next week uh, on the St. Louis Blues, and we're going to dive deep into the Vegas offseason, see, see where they go from here, I, and I had some stats uh, I wanted to get to this week, and we didn't have time, so I'll throw those out next week, and why Vegas fans can look forward to a, a very good next season. Uh, that's going to do it for this week for Chris on Mark and we're gone.